Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. And I would love for you to turn in your Bibles again to Acts chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 11 to verse 26 in just a few moments. We are slowly moving our way through this New Testament book. Um, Acts, you'll remember, is the second of a two-volume work that was written by Luke to a man by the name of Theophilus, who may have been a high-ranking Roman official, who had recently become a follower of Christ, and he has some questions about what it really means to be a Christian. And Luke and Acts are written together to help him gain certainty, grounding, foundations in what he believes. And we have discovered thus far, uh, as the Holy Spirit has come in the book of Acts, Uh, One of the things that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a part of a community of fellow followers of Jesus Christ. And we see what this looks like, how the values and the goals that these believers have. And we read these first few chapters aspirationally. This is what we want for our church as we read these chapters. Um, I I heard this week about a new album that's going to be released very soon from uh, an artist named Sinead O'Connor. Do you remember Sinead O'Connor? I don't know much about Sinead O'Connor, I confess to you. Uh, uh, The most thing that I remember about her was in 1992, she was on Saturday Night Live and she tore on live television in half, shredded actually, a picture of Pope John Paul II. Uh, Quite a controversial move at the time. She also was known for um, shaving her head. It was her feminist protest. (laughs) We had a young man in uh, my high school. He played on our soccer team. He was tall and gangly and cut his hair just like uh, Sinead O'Connor. His name was Ken Conklin, and we used to call him Sinead O'Conklin. So that's how deeply Sinead O'Connor is in my mind. Um, She uh, is an Irish uh, songwriter and uh, singer. Uh, She's been nominated for some Grammys. Her career's gone back into the 80s. And she has a rocky relationship with the church. Um, Sometimes she defends the church. Sometimes she attacks the church. She grew up in a Roman Catholic family. Um, She is, in no sense of the word, an Orthodox believer. She says on the one hand that she believes in the Trinity, and then the other hand, she says things that sound very uh, pantheistic. Uh, She has this new album coming out, and one one of the tracks on the album is a song called Take Me to Church. Uh, It's upbeat, it's uh, exuberant, it's a joyful song. We won't be using it anytime soon for an offertory, but uh, it's, um, well, let me read you the lyrics of the chorus. Fine poetry, it's not. Listen to it, though. Oh, take me to church. I've done so many bad things that hurts. Take me to church, but not the ones that hurt. Because that ain't the truth, and that's not what it's worth. Yeah, take me to church, oh, take me to church. I'm intrigued by this line, take me to church, but not the ones that hurt. The rest of the song doesn't say what she has in mind when she's talking about churches that hurt. Based on some of the things she's said and done in the past, it would be likely to say that she's um, talking about churches that have been embroiled in the sex abuse scandals. Uh, Her own, the Roman Catholic Church. 
Of course, they're not alone in that. In recent years, if you've been paying attention, uh, uh, MK schools and some evangelical Christian colleges have been embroiled in their own sex abuse scandals. That certainly is a church that hurts. Uh, uh, if that's not it, I have a couple suggestions for her about churches that hurt. Um, she writes, I've done so many bad things that it hurts that I would like to say to her that don't go to a church that's not going to talk to you honestly about the bad things that you have done. Don't go to a church that tells you that shame and guilt are just social constructs that have been posed on you and your real need in life is to just feel better about yourself. That would be a church that would hurt. Another type of church that would hurt is one that would call you not to worship a God who is utterly astonishing. A church where God is very little or a church where God's great concern is your life and your dreams and your values and reaching your potential. A church will hurt you if it teaches you that God is you-centered. If you cry out like this and you need someone to tell you the truth about what you have done you, you, uh, and you want to, you, you want to go somewhere where they're going to, they're going to speak to you about it and where they're going to call you to worship a God who is beyond your preferences, your future, your choices, your past. And that's the sort of church that we want to be. And we find these values surfacing in this sermon that Peter preaches starting in Acts chapter three, verse 11. Uh, this is the second part of a four-part story that here is at the beginning of the book of Acts. At the beginning of this story, Peter and John heal a lame man. This miracle happens. Then the second part, there's a sermon where Peter explains what happened. In the third part, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, uh, Peter and John appear before the Sadducees and they, uh, the sorry, the Sanhedrin, and they defend what they have done. And in the fourth part. Uh, we see the church gathering to pray in the face of possible future persecution. Those are the four parts. This is the second part. We're going to look at this sermon in smaller chunks, but I want to read the whole thing first together. This is God's word, and it's good to absorb the whole thing as Luke summarizes it. So you follow along as I read from Acts chapter 3, verse 11 and following. Um, this is what the text says. While the man that had been healed held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets 
saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from the people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now the text itself in the first couple of verses tells us how to read this sermon. Imagine the scene again here. Peter and John have healed this man outside one of the gates going into the temple, and he leaped to his feet. Well, Peter pulled him up, and once he saw he could walk and stand, he ran around the temple, leaping and shouting. They went into the temple for or the temple courtyard where the three o'clock every day three o'clock prayer service was held. And then they came out of it and they went over to the east side of the temple where there was a large portico called Solomon's Colonnade. That's where perhaps the church was going to meet. Maybe they met there every day after the three o'clock prayer service. Uh, And this man came with them. He was hanging on to Peter and John. And enough time had gone by. They were in the service of the prayer meeting. Enough time had gone by that, that word had spread. And people started coming, those who knew this lame man. They were very curious about this, so they came, and Peter decides to address him. And what I'm interested in is what he doesn't say. Because he doesn't do what we would expect in our culture, in our day, someone to say under these circumstances. We love celebrities. We love human heroes who do great things. Um, Notice Peter says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? This is an interesting start for the rest of the sermon. He's hardly ever going to talk about the layman. The rest of the service is all about Jesus. Now that probably doesn't surprise you that I say, well, there's a portion of the Bible here that's all about Jesus. That's not a surprise. Again, what is surprising to us is what would have happened if this scene had occurred today in the evangelical church in America. Peter's sermon would not be about Jesus, but Peter's sermon would be about how to heal or how you can unleash Christ's power in your life like I just did. Or maybe we put the man himself, the layman, on, uh, on display. He could headline a conference and he would deliver a message called The Faith That Made Me Walk or Trusting in God for His Great Work. And he would write a book and he'd record a motivational DVD and his story would be into a, made into a movie starring Kirk Cameron. And it would just be wonderful. That's how we would have handled it. Now there's some value in testimonies like that. They're They're useful. Uh, We we benefit from hearing how God has worked in in people's lives. But listen, 
Peter takes the opportunity here to declare to this crowd and through the Bible to you something that you need more than a human testimony. You need a Savior before whom you can fall utterly astonished. A Lord who amazes you, who is great in power and in glory. This is where the Bible often begins. It's not often where we end up, but it's where the Bible begins. We, we often start when we want to talk to people about uh, five steps to getting along with your mother-in-law. Or, <laughs> I'm going to buckle. Or, um, <laughs> or three marks of saving faith. Or we want to give you steps on how you can make your life a little bit better. The Bible instead starts by showing you a holy God who is worth trusting in and worth walking toward. The Bible moves us in this direction all the time. In fact, this is the greatest challenge that you face in your life. When something difficult comes that rocks your world, this is the challenge. The challenge that you have before you is to see what is happening to you in the shadow of the greatness of God. I could show this to you, the, the Bible's priority on that in a number of places. But I just want to focus for one minute on a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I printed out the verses there on the sheet that was in your bulletin. Um, as I was preparing this week, I had, a, I had a thought in my mind that maybe just recently we've read this and I've talked about this. I couldn't remember. I'm blaming it on old age if I'm repeating myself. But look at the verse, all right? 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I wonder if light and momentary are surprising adjectives to you. It seems strange. Uh, you have seen a fair amount of coverage, no doubt, this week. Uh, devoted to the uh, death of Robin Williams, who apparently committed suicide. You've heard about his troubled past, his, his uh, substance abuse, his long battle with, with depression, and some of you know exactly what that's like. And these are not adjectives that you would use, are they? Light and momentary. How, how in the world can Paul, with any sort of credibility, use the words light and momentary to talk about the things that happen to us in this world when, when trouble presses down on us? Well, the reason that Paul could use adjectives like that is because he has something else to compare to his afflictions. The theme of 2 Corinthians 4 is the glory of the gospel. Look up at verses 5 and 6. Again, I printed them on the sheet for you. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said that light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God's glory in Christ. You fight to believe this. Work to believe this. We encounter weighty issues. I am not for a moment trying to, to minimize the sorrow that descends in this broken world. Some of you walk through widowhood, the pain of having an unfaithful spouse, uh, the, the great grief of rebellious children, 
bankruptcy, cancer, depression, all these things, light and momentary. They're light and momentary in comparison. In comparison. In comparison to the weight of glory. Feathers in comparison to the bricks of God's greater glory. This is where Peter is trying to take his audience. This is one of the most carefully, this sermon is one of the most carefully crafted descriptions of Jesus in the Bible. Uh, there are other ways to lay out this sermon that Jesus, uh, Peter is going to deliver. What I want to do, though, is I want to go through seven titles in this text that, Jesus, that Peter gives to Jesus. We're going to walk through them. Again, you could probably divide this sermon up differently. That's what we're going to do this morning. Before we do that, one more step, though, of introduction or orientation to the text. Now, the reason that Peter is exalting in the Lord Jesus before them, Peter is just on fire with delight in the supremacy of Jesus. And before it's aimed, actually, he has one goal, and the goal is the imperative verbs in verse 19, the commands. Repent, then, and turn to God. This is the application. This is the direction of the sermon. In verse 16, he's going to use the word faith. He's calling his audience to confident trust in the Lord Jesus. This is the point. And all the titles that we're going to go over of the Lord Jesus in this text are here to show you why you should trust in him, why you should turn to him, why he is the clearest object of your confident faith. Now, I know that many of you have trusted in him. I know that because I've talked to you about it at various points in time. Sometimes I ask you a question that I learned from Doug Cecil. Doug Cecil was my evangelism professor in seminary. I've mentioned this before. Uh, Doug Cecil had a rule for his daughters. He had two or three daughters. When they were in high school, they could go on a date with a young man that was acceptable. He would come to the house, pick them up, and and go. Uh, If there was going to be a third date, though, the second date always had to be at their house, at the Cecil household, for dinner. So first date, they could go somewhere. Second date had to be in their house for dinner. And Doug Cecil inevitably, during the conversation, uh, would turn to the young man and he would say, So, young man... Tell me where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you crossed the line of faith yet or not? That's a great question. And for many of you, I know the answer to that question is yes, but for some of you, it's not. And here is an explicit case in the Bible for why you should turn to Jesus. The value all of us get out of this is that it's a reminder to us that if you have already crossed the line of faith, it's a reminder to us of the wisdom of doing so. You made the right choice. If you see Jesus exalted in this way, you just know, oh, following him, it's the best choice anyone could ever make. Amen. And, 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 and Peter lifts this up so that you will even invite you to invest even more in the Lord Christ because of his utterly astonishing greatness encapsulated in these titles. Let's, let's look through them, shall we? First of all, the text says that Christ is God's servant. He's God's servant. 
In verses uh, 13 through 16 here, Peter begins, he wants to explain how the lame man was healed, how Jesus healed the lame man, the same Jesus that they had crucified. How could he have suffered so much and yet still do this miracle? After all, most of this crowd would be thinking, isn't Jesus dead? And the reason he could do that, even though he suffered, is because he is God's servant. Now, the word glorified and the word servant that Peter uses together, he says God has glorified his servant, Jesus. The word glorified and servant are used together in another passage of Scripture, namely a section of the book of Isaiah, sometimes called the servant songs. Isaiah prophesied that there would come someone who would be known as God's servant. He would suffer and be glorified. Look here at Isaiah 52, verse 13. I'm going to read several verses from this passage, uh, but I only uh, printed out one on your sheet. See, he says, my servant, God speaking, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Then I'm going to continue. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely, surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him stricken by God, punished by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. That line comes to mind from this verse. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Jesus is the suffering servant. And what the people needed to know is the role that they played in his suffering. You see how Peter does that in the verses that come? He uses these verbs to just pound them with what they have done. Look at uh, verse 13. It says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life. Jesus is the suffering servant, and he suffered both at your hands and according to the plan of God. Peter is not going to let them escape from their guilt. Even though, what, according to verse 17, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Remember what Jesus prayed on the cross? 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the full implication of what they're doing in crucifying me. But notice here, their ignorance does not excuse their sin. Their ignorance does not mean that they don't have to repent. Their ignorance doesn't mean that they're not guilty. Their ignorance is just an explanation of why they're getting the second chance to hear about Jesus. There are echoes here in this passage of how the Bible indicts the entire world. Um, I I don't know how much of this book you have read, and I I don't know how much uh, you know about the God who, who gave it to us or about his son, but everyone on the planet stands without excuse before him, before the God who made us. No human being on earth lives up to the standards that he set, the pattern for life that he wove into into creation. And everything that we do as broken human beings is, is stained by our brokenness. The way you love your family falls short of God's standards. The way you do your job falls short. Your morality, your intellectual life, Everything about you, we stand condemned before him. Sinead O'Connor is one type of of Catholic believer. Uh, Mel Gibson is another. Uh, You remember when Mel Gibson made the movie uh, about the death of Christ called The Passion of the Christ. Uh, When it came time for them to drive the nails into Christ's hands, perhaps you've heard this. At Mel Gibson's directions, he they, they focused the camera very tightly on Christ's hands laying across the, the, the cross. And Mel Gibson himself wanted to be the one who pounded the nails on the screen. He wanted his own hands in that shot. I disagree with Mel Gibson about a lot of things. He has a lot of personal problems and I don't agree with much of his theology either. But he had that moment right Peter is speaking to this crowd about their guilt and their role in the death of Christ. And without much difference, he could speak to us too. Now, this condemnation that he brings up continues as we move to the second title here. Jesus is the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus is the Holy and Righteous One. That's in verse 14. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Now, we talked about, we finished just recently the book of Leviticus, and how many times did we talk about the word holy? Holy basically means to be set apart, or to be distinct, or in a class all by yourself. And God is holy. He's distinct in his power, in his beauty, in his goodness, in his wisdom, and in his justice. And Jesus is too. He is distinct. He's in a class all by himself, apart from any other person who ever walked the planet, Jesus is unique. He's the righteous one. Now, by pairing these together, Peter is bringing two great titles in the uh, Old Testament to God himself. Jesus is divine. He's the holy and righteous one. He's God in the flesh. One of the criticisms that's often uh, labeled or uh, leveled at us, we who believe the Bible is uh, we're criticized often for believing that there is only one way to God. We're criticized for the arrogance behind that, that intolerance. How can you say there's only one path to salvation, only one way to heaven, only one right way, only one source of forgiveness? And again, we're accused of, of arrogance. 
Trust me, this is not our idea, though. We did not come up with it ourselves. It was Jesus' idea. Uh, He said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Next, next uh, time we're in, in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, we'll read that great verse in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, the exclusivity is not our creation, and it is not a claim that rests chiefly on our creeds, or on our doctrinal statement, or in our belief system. We don't believe that, we don't say that everyone else is wrong and we're right because we're smarter than everybody else, or because our system is better, or because um, we have some sort of genius insight into the truth. Our claim to exclusivity rests chiefly on the exclusivity of our Savior. He is the Holy One. And because He is the Holy One, there is only one way through Him. He's the exclusive one. We didn't figure this out ourselves. Our exclusivity rests in His exclusivity. And I submit to you that He is self-validating reality. That's a funny phrase, I suppose. When you look at Him, and when you read about Him, and when you seek to know Him, His very existence calls forth faith. He's self-validating. That's why reading the Bible is so dangerous. Because when you read about Jesus, it calls for, his very existence calls for faith. Now, in in the same verse that, that, that Peter calls him holy and righteous, he says that the people asked for a murderer to be released instead of Jesus. Do you remember Barabbas? This is what's happening here. Um, you disown the Holy and Righteous One and you ask that a murderer be released to you. And here we're learning a little bit more. Peter is getting more into the idea of, of the suffering of Jesus and its substitutionary nature from Isaiah chapter 53. There were three crosses on that hill. That Friday there were going to be three crucifixions. That center cross was for a murderer by the name of Barabbas. And on that morning, there was a substitution made. A substitution demanded by the people. Hanging on the cross was God's suffering servant, the holy and righteous one. Now third here in this text, Jesus is the author of life. He's the author of life. Verse 15 says, you kill the author of life. How do you kill the author of life? Uh That puzzles me a little bit. Think about that. This phrase, author of life, could refer to a number of different things. Um, Actually, the Bible uses all three of them to describe Jesus. It could say author of life. It could mean in the sense that he's the prince of life, or he's the leader of life, or he's preeminent in life. Could mean that. Could mean life, he's the author of life, and he's the source of life. He's the originator of life. Could, Could mean that too. It could mean that he's the author of life in the fact that he's the first one who came back from the dead. That's a possibility, too. I think it maybe is referring, though, to the fact that he's the, the source of life because he, he contrasts that with being raised. Look, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You know what this says about the Lord Jesus? 
He is the author of life who has been raised by God. He is the most alive person ever. He was dead, but now he's the liveliest of all living things. He is the best... This is, there's no... I don't know. Is there a better word? He's the best liver... Not this. Liver that has ever been. He's the best, most liveliest. No one else has been more alive than Jesus is. In fact, life overflows from him. You're more mature than I am, I'm sure, so you haven't done this recently, but sometimes when someone asks me, they'll set their glass down in front of me and say, hey, would you fill this up? And I'll take a pitcher of water, and, and you start pouring, right? And then this evil thought comes to my mind. And, and I pour and pour and pour with the goal that I'm going to fill that glass to the absolute top. In fact, if I'm really good, uh, you know, water has that property that you can make it bubble over the glass. So if I can pour enough, you, see, you know what I'm talking about, but you're mature enough not to have done this recently. Yesterday I was tempted, but I resisted. So, um, so you, you, you just... And then you, that person, you can't do anything with a glass without spilling it, right? You can't, can't look at it. You can't shake the table. You can't move it. You can't open a window because the breeze will cause the water to spill out of the, the glass. That's how full of life Jesus is. You can't get anywhere near him without getting splashed in some way with life because he's the liveliest liver that has ever lived. <laughs> Uh, this is how the layman walks. How does he walk? By trusting in the author of life. Now, fourth, Peter claims Jesus, acclaims him as the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And the word itself, Messiah, means anointed one. And according to the prophets of the Old Testament, the Messiah would suffer, but he would be the one who is at the center of God's plans to repair the world that he broke. And Peter in these verses points to three things that the Messiah does. I'm going to borrow John Stott's summarization of what they are. Um, verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Benefit number one, total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. My translation says wiped out so that your sins might be wiped out. Maybe your translation says blotted out. Um, the common paper of the ancient world was called papyrus, and the ink that they used back then did not have the acid that our inks do today. When you write in pen on a piece of paper, there's an acid in that ink that bites into the paper and uh, makes the writing permanent. Ancient ink did not have that same property. And if you wanted to reuse a piece of, of papyrus, you would take a sponge and you'd wash off, and you could wash off what you had written. You could wipe it out. You could blot it out. That's the word that's used here. Your sins will be blotted out, washed out. Actually, they use this word in ancient Athens, too. If you were in ancient Athens and you had been convicted of a crime, an, a, a capital crime, and you were sentenced to execution, they would, uh, upon your sentencing, blot your name out of the registry of citizens of the city of Athens. Total forgiveness. Now, secondly here, the text talks about spiritual refreshment. Spiritual refreshment. Verse 19. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
I don't think this phrase appears anywhere else in the Bible, times of refreshing. The word refreshment means relief, breathing space, relaxation. It's the sense of peace and security that comes with forgiveness. And then third here, the Messiah, when he comes, will bring universal restoration. Verse 21 says, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Universal restoration. God someday is going to make all things new. Everything's going to be repaired. You have, do you have moments in your life that you wish you could go back and undo just the last 15 seconds of what you did? Uh, the summer before I started working here, um, I was uh, my job. I had a job at a, a Christian camp in Texas. I was the waterfront director, taught little children how to water ski all summer, and we also had canoeing. So um, uh, every day I would uh, drive the canoe trailer that had uh, ten canoes on it over to the area of the lake that we used, and we would unload the canoes, and, and uh, there would be a canoeing instructor. Well, after camp was over, um, I decided as a favor to the camp, it would be nice for me to go down to the lake where they were and uh, where the canoes were stored in the parking lot and, and drive the canoes back from the lake to the camp itself where there was a special uh, a parking area within a, a copse of trees for the, the trailers, for the boats that they used for the, the summer. Well, I pulled the truck, it was a pickup truck, and I had the, the canoes behind me, and I was driving through this copse of trees up to the parking spot, and, and I noticed that the, the truck kind of stopped for a minute. I didn't touch the brake, but it stopped. And my first thought, and my, actually my only thought was, oh, well, uh, the truck's stuck in a root. You know, copse of trees, they chopped down some, some uh, trees, and it must be stuck in a stump or a root. So all I need to do is give it a little bit more gas, and we'll be okay. Again, it was my first and only thought. So uh, that's what I did. And then there was a tremendous crash. The problem was not on the ground. The problem was up high where one of the branches of the trees that were surrounding me had caught on the canoe trailer. And as I got out of the uh, car, I noticed five of the fiberglass canoes crushed and landing on top of one another. I had broken the trailer and the canoes had, had fallen. This is one of those moments where, you're, where you think to yourself, oh, if I could only undo the last 15 seconds of my life. If I could just go back and do that. I cannot think about that summer. The whole thing I did, the whole summer, that I can't think of that summer without that one, it's a mental burr under my saddle. Can't think about the summer without that one moment. I wish I could go back and undo it. Do you have things like that in your life? Words that you wish you could pull back in your mouth? Things you wish, you, even just 15 or 20 seconds, or for some of you, a few weeks or a few months or a couple years, you wish you could just make them come untrue? That's what Messiah does. He is the restorer of all things. And like C.S. Lewis said, in that day when he comes, He's going to make every sad thing come untrue. There's a day coming when I'm not going to think about those dumb canoes again. Or it will be so wrapped in the grace of God, it will be a reason for me to give him thanks. 
But it's interesting, at the end of Isaiah 53, we think about that and we think, oh, what a relief that will be, how happy we'll be. At the end of Isaiah 53, it talks about the Messiah, the suffering servant, seeing the fruit of his work and he'll be satisfied. At the end of the hymn, this is my father's world, the last line of the third verse says, Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. Do you know who's looking forward to that day of universal restoration more than any sinner on the planet? The Lord Jesus himself. He is waiting for the word from his father to come and and restore all things so that the fruit of his labor, he'll be able to see all of the work that he's done and he'll be face to face with his bride, the church, and he'll be satisfied. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, next here, he is a prophet like Moses. He's a prophet like Moses. Verse 22 says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up to you a prophet like me. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. and explains in John chapter 1. When John the Baptist comes, they say to him, Hey, who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Ah, they, they had this in mind, that a prophet was going to come. The prophet. A prophet like Moses. He's going to legislate a new life. He's going to show you how to live in covenant with God. And inherent to that, new prophet is a threat. Verse 23, anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off. The sixth title here is that Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of David. Now, this is less direct in the text. It's not as direct as the other descriptions. It's more of an illusion. Verse 24, beginning with Samuel... All the prophets who have spoken here have foretold these days. <coughs> to my knowledge, we don't have anything from Samuel himself directly about the Messiah. But Samuel was the one who anointed David king and spoke to him about the kingdom, his kingdom. And Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of David, the one who has the everlasting kingdom, who is now seated at God's right hand until all his enemies are made his footstool, who rules with an iron scepter, and the prophets foretold this day. Now finally here, Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham. In the middle of verse 25, it says, He said to Abraham, through your seed, your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. God raised up his servant. He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now Peter here is referring back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 where God promises that through one of Abraham's descendants he is going to bless the whole world and here is where the blessing begins by turning you each from your wicked ways. There's a transition that happens in this sermon. It's similar to what happens in Acts chapter 2. There's a point in time when everyone listening to this sermon, when Peter delivers it, should say to themselves, Oh no. You killed the author of life. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You rejected the Messiah. And everybody should say to themselves, Oh no. And at the end of this passage here, when, when, when uh, Peter now is talking about turning us from our wickedness, Each one of us, we move from, oh, no, to, oh, yes, yes, that's what I want. Can God do that? Maybe you haven't reached this moment in your life yet. Sinead O'Connor apparently has. 
but you'll reach it. You'll, you'll come to the point where you're so tired of how you mangled your life by your own choices. Christians ex- experience this, and people who have not yet believed experience this. You hurt the people around you. You, you consign yourself to, to loneliness. You lay your head down at night on the pillow to go to sleep, and what races through your mind is all the things that you did that day that just twisted what you know to be good and just and healthy. In my better moments, when I'm disciplining my children, I'll sit and, and talk to them and, and ask them about the consequences of what they were, were trying to do. I will say to them, um, what were you hoping to accomplish by what you did? What did you want to happen by what you did? And then I asked, were you hoping to have this conversation with me right now while I sit in this, the chair I always thank you in? Uh, They never say, yes, I really wanted to talk to you under these circumstances. They never say that. They always say, no, no. Oh God, great God, turn me from my wicked ways to blessing others through your holy servant, Jesus. This is what he does. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's slogging work, but this is what the Lord Jesus does. This is God's blessing to us. When I first started landscaping the parsonage 14 years ago, there was a massive, we found it a few inches down under the grass, massive stump that we had to pull out. I I bought an axe. (laughs) I used it. And then I called Marty Lentz, and he came and helped me. And I'm pretty sure that in pulling it out with a chain, I burned out his clutch in his truck. Roots, some roots come out like that. Last year, I, I pulled out some roots of old arborvitaes that used to be around the garage. They came out so easy, I think I could have used my bicycle to pull them out. The, the root of sin is, is planted deeply in, in different ways in our hearts. Sometimes... It's clutch-burning work. Sometimes it's bicycle work. But this is the blessing that Jesus brings. He turns us from our wicked ways. So this is what Peter proclaims. This is what he says about the one in whom we believe, the one the Bible calls us to. And in the midst of this descriptive material, there are these two commands, repent and turn to God. So I can ask you, tell me, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, Have you come to the point yet where you've crossed the line of faith? You have every reason to. Because the one you're turning to is God's servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the son of David. He's the seed of Abraham. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, you who are the great God in heaven, it is, it is difficult to proclaim and exclaim the Lord Jesus in a way that is worthy of the glory that is due his name. Um, we have this divinely inspired book before us where, where Peter, we have recorded a summary of his sermon where he proclaimed your name, your great, utterly astonishing name. And Lord Jesus, it is our desire that we would be captivated, oh, captivated 
by the Lord Jesus Christ who was great in life and power. You are great in faithfulness and fulfilling all of your promises. He is great in his death and great in his resurrection. Oh, Lord, would you remind us of the wisdom of following him and the investment that these, my brothers and sisters, have made in trusting in him and obeying him and serving him. Keeping your head bowed for for a moment, I, I just would like to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have every reason to trust in him. He's, he's our sin bearer. He's the one who reconciles us to God. He's the one who's living, exalted at God's right hand. Today would be a great day, a great day for you to trust in him. In fact, at the end of the service, if, if you'd like to talk to me, I'll, I'll be down here at the front. I would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'll, I'll be here after the service. You can come talk to me. Lord Jesus, as we uh, finish our service, we have uh, one last song, one last words of acclamation to sing to you. Would you receive this uh, offering of thanksgiving to you? We'll sing to one another for our mutual encouragement and for your name's sake. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.